In this edition of the Futures of Work podcast, Harry Pitts sat down with Charles Umney, Associate Professor of Industrial Relations at University of Leeds and author of a new book called Class Matters, Inequality and Exploitation in 21st Century Britain. Harry began by asking Charles why he wrote this book and why now. So I wrote this book, um, I guess, kind of during late 2016, first half of 2017. So why did I write it? Um, well, I wrote it because... Uh, I felt like the concept of class and the way we talk about class in not just sort of current British political discourse, but in a lot of countries is very deficient and leads to kind of quite problematic, bad conclusions. So particularly, I mean, I, I don't want to sort of centralise something like Brexit too much in this, but certainly the case that like I remember around like the time of the Brexit referendum and the immediate aftermath um, there was this whole sort of intensified discourse particularly sort of carried by people like Theresa May who at the time seemed very powerful which was almost this kind of rhetorical rediscovery of class but in quite a sort of almost surreal and ridiculous way so you had Theresa May talking to the um, Conservative Party conference in 2016, like constantly using the phrase working class, working class, to a much greater extent, extent than uh, any Labour leader, including Corbyn, would use it, and um, sort of acting almost like as this sort of interlocutor or sort of mouthpiece for this kind of ventriloquized version of, um, quote-unquote, the working class, where which was basically um, someone who is uh, pro-death penalty, pro-monarchy, and probably most importantly anti-immigration. This this became what the discussion of class was about. You know, the, these very, this sort of emerging notion of the kind of traditional working class, which was defined um, by the right for the right. And now maybe there was space, the space for them to do that was perhaps created by sort of previous failures on the left to deal with class properly. But certainly around, like, in the kind of aftermath of Brexit, um, class came back on the agenda rhetorically, but it did so in a very self-serving way, which was clearly calculated to lead towards um, kind of reinforcing right-wing conventional wisdom. You know, immigration is uh, is uh, uh, sort of basically just a kind of instrumental tool for Guardian readers um, inflicted on everyone else, you know, this this kind of this kind of argument, um, which was suddenly becoming kind of expressed and backed up in class terms. So that so so the motivation for the book. Sorry, coming back to your question, the motivation for the book was to uh, attack that situation. We just you know that's a problem. We need to um, present a different way of talking about it. Over that same period, how do you see class having been understood? on the left of politics. Yeah, so I suppose, I, I mean, here it, it kind of depends what we mean by the left, doesn't it? But if we talk about, like, the le- the sort of centre-left, uh, the more kind of mainstream cent- sort of centre-left of British politics, uh, I mean, it sort of vanished, didn't it? Like it um, we had a lot of terms which I guess were sort of supposed to substitute for class. So, like, for instance, the kind of squeeze middle something like this, um, but which didn't really make make any kind of sort of proper sort of 
rigorous reference to it in any kind of meaningful way. You know, it was sort of, there was a conventional wisdom on the left that class was like an old issue and that talking about it was a bit passe. Um, so I suppose the answer is that they, I, I don't think they did really treat it. And, and to the extent that they did, they totally bought into the, what in the book I call like the sort of conservative class warrior, the sort of right wing class warrior line. You know, like we, so we had, um, you know, the sort of famous controls on immigration mug, this sort of thing. We had the sort of centre left very clearly sort of buying into what the right was saying about, about, um, sort of immigration and so on. Um, because A, they didn't really have their own analysis. And B, the right had come up with this, you know, empirically bogus, doesn't stand up to that much scrutiny, but nonetheless quite resonant and sort of powerful cultural definition of class. And they, they saw that happening and they thought, okay, well, so we have to, if, if we're going to sort of reconnect as a, with, with our sort of working class base or whatever, we need to start saying the same kind of things, which is what they did. Around issues like immigration, so yeah, they don't. They, they don't really. They didn't have a, a, a good analysis of class. You notice I sort of erred on whether to say that in the present or past tense there, but mm. maybe that's something we should come back to. What What but, do you think has changed then with Brexit having shaken up some of the pieces? Well, so yeah, actually, one reason I said before I was a bit kind of loath to start the analysis with Brexit because. I think maybe the extent to which Brexit itself shook up the pieces can be overstated. Um, it's purely that I think what, what, what the Brexit referendum was, um, in this case, it was like a prompt for this re-emergence of kind of class discourse. It kind of gave a green light for the sort of right-wing class warrior argument. It was almost like a sort of indication for that argument. Um, which sort of people like Theresa May really took up quite enthusiastically, although obviously ultimately not successfully in her case. Um, so I, do you know, I, in terms of the way like the left talks about class, I, I, I don't want to sort of put too much causality onto Brexit. I think, I think there is the potential for a quite strong analysis of class on the left which in some cases might be able to start coming through, but which at the moment is struggling to shake off the the sort of culturalist assumptions baggage. Um, so actually, increasingly on the left, now people are starting to talk about things like universalism. You know, so when we talk about the provision of services... Um, we're starting to talk more in terms of, um, you know, kind of what, what a right wing person would, um, say in a sort of, uh, piss taking way is free stuff for everyone, but which I would say in a kind of positive goods kind of way, you know, um, we're starting to talk about universalism more rather than a sort of focus on kind of means testing, this kind of thing. Now, to me, that's quite a promising development. Obviously, we don't know what's going to happen to that, and by the time this goes out, that could be totally smashed. But for the last couple of years, I think there has been more of a focus on, yeah, sort of 
a more kind of universal approach to kind of the way we run society, the provision of services to everyone in a, in a kind of universal way. Now, that to me is a class analysis in some respects and quite a good one, you know, because um, by sort of talking about universal services, by talking about kind of universalism in our sort of health system, um, whatever, transport system, social services, we are kind of, you know, basically you are, you are uh, launching an attack on the kind of labour capital relationship, if you like. It might be a sort of reformist or moderate one or whatever, but nonetheless, you are actually doing something which is good for um, people who act as labour and people who are forced to sell their labour power. But that is not being talked about in class terms at the moment. So I think there's there's ideas which are sort of incipient and positive, but um, they're not really being talked about as class-related ideas. So with reference to some of those ideas, I mean, you might think of the 99%, the 1% or the many and the yeah. few as a kind of a conceptualization of class that fits that universalist idea to some extent. And there's certainly popular ways of thinking about or trying to process class society uh, on the left and and the right, actually, when it comes down to the idea of the people and the elites. But how does your understanding of class that you present in the book, um, you know, how, how does it differ from or enter into dialogue with some of those um, ideas, would you say? So uh, the 99% and the 1%, um, yeah, the way I'm talking about class in the, in the book is very different from that. Because that, like the 99% and the 1%, that was based on the sort of, it, the, the initial core for that was like an analysis of income trends, wasn't it? Where, where there was this sort, sort of observation that um, the income of the kind of 1% has increased vastly faster than everyone else's. So from there, you kind of make the step where you go, okay, well, that means there must be 99% of everyone else um, who can kind of, be sort of brought into a common coalition against that 1%. Um, now, to me, that's not a particularly compelling analysis um, because, I mean, for a lot of reasons, but probably the main one is that it, it totally underestimates um, the, the, the centrality of what in Marx's terms we'd call like the labour capital relationship. So what I'm talking about in the book is class as a relationship between those people who, um, in order to survive, depend on selling their labour power and those whatever people, institutions, or in fact just the general process of profiting from that, you know, capital as a kind of process which, which sort of repeats itself and expands. And um, talking in terms about the 99.1% just doesn't enable us to reckon with that because it, it totally underestimates um, the sort of coalition of people who sort of benefit from the existing state of affairs. Um, you know, it's it, maintaining the status quo in advanced capitalist economies, not that I'm particularly an advocate of doing so, um, but it's it's naive to say that it, there's just kind of the 1% of people who, who benefits from that. You know, we are up against a much more formidable coalition of different and more complicated interests than, than, than can just be sort of cordoned off in that way. And yeah, there was going to be a second point there. I, I mean, I think 
the other point is sort of as as a mobilizing idea it's despite the fact that on, on the face of things it seems to be very successful in kind of mobilizing people and capturing people's imaginations maybe it's it's actually a bit vague and diffuse because it's based on a kind of statistical analysis you know it's based on kind of looking at a graph and sort of identifying that one line is going up faster than the others and if people are in sort of you know i, I think there's probably quite a lot of people that don't really relate to that actually and they're not as outraged as one might hope and expect them to be by those kind of like, like sort of statistical factoids um but what does resonate with people so I, I wanted to sort of guide it back towards a more kind of marxian reading of class which i think does actually resonate with a lot more people in their sort of daily lives you know if you're talking about a marxian view of class you're talking about the labor capital relationship you are talking about things which fundamentally structure and influence, you know, what people do at work, for instance. Um, you know, the way society is governed, the way sort of institutions in society sort of develop and, um, and, and sort of evolve over time. So from a Marxian perspective, you know, if people are sick of their employers, if they, whatever, hate their job, feel alienated, a lot of things which people actually feel on a gut level, um, sort of Marxian views of class actually get to that in a way that sort of 99 versus 1% don't. Well, on those Marxian views of class that you're reckoning with in the, in the book, how would you say they relate to or conflict with kind of popular academic theories of class that we find today, principally in sociology around the work of Bourdieu, but also in the sociology of work around things like the precariat, which I know you engage with a lot. Like, what is it, how are you understanding the Marxian kind of inheritance of understanding class and posing it against that wider academic context then of engagement? Yeah, so um, I think that the sort of core distinction I want to get at if we're talking about academic analyses of class, um, the thing I'm, the sort of general idea I suppose I'm trying to... Um, get at or sort of critique if you like is what i see as a kind of focus on classification as an end in itself so um if we think about something like uh you know the great british class survey very sort of influential piece of academic work which sort of divided british society up into kind of, i think seven class groups um with the precariat at the bottom the elite at the top, and in the middle you've got things like traditional working class and various other things which are slightly less catchy. Um, so yeah, I what I'm what I'm not keen on, I guess, is the focus on classification as an end in itself. And the reason I'm not keen on that is because I think it tends to um, underestimate the extent to which um, there are sort of shared processes, shared problems, shared pressures, which are common to those people who are forced to sell their labour power in order to survive. Okay, so um, if we take someone who, you know, in the way I describe it, we could say acts as labour, you know, in other words, someone who um, depends on being able to sell their time and skills in exchange for like a wage, to someone who then profits from that. This is obviously like a, this applies to a, a sort of vast range of people. And there's a lot of 
heterogeneity within that. But what I try and argue in the book is that the nature of that relationship, you know, the nature of the relationship between people who have to sell their labour power and you know, these sort of institutions or processes of capital which profit from from that, uh, imposes quite imposes these sort of pressures which cut across a lot of the sort of divisions we put in. So the really obvious and kind of sort of polemical and political example is the question of migration. You know, so if we look in, um, I think maybe we're sort of going into more sort of political science, this kind of territory now, but a lot of the discussion around the way sort of um, immigration features in in our politics, that is often discussed in sort of terms which are similar to the kind of right-wing class warrior model. So you say, well, here we have this concept of the traditional working class and people in this category um, tend uh, to be sceptical about immigrants, um, you know, and therefore it's a terrible mistake for a party of the left uh, to sort of have a pro-immigration policy outlook and so on. These are the kind of conclusions we reach. Um, But from the perspective I'm talking about, uh, you're much more able to see what is actually common between these groups. You know, we're, we're not kind of trying to negate or ignore the differences, but it enables us to see that a lot more, a lot of people are involved in labour capital relationships, and that that actually presents them to some extent with shared problems, and it starts to enable us to actually see the basis for solidarity rather than sort of parceling people up into different categories defined in terms. You use from the idea from Marx of uh, alien powers um, and adequate forms as a way of kind of structuring the the the, uh, the discussion in the book. Um, now, within this is a specific spin on Marx, which everything always is. Yeah. Um, but do you want to just say a little bit more about how you understand that dynamic between alien powers and adequate forms? Yeah, yeah, I do. Okay, so. Um... In the book, like I tr- one of the objectives, okay, in the book is to try and show that when we talk about class relationships in a Marxist sense, we're not just talking about sort of categorizing and explaining the in- the experience of sort of individuals based on you know either sort of circumstances at birth or uh, experiences in the workplace or whatever, but we're also talking about a dynamic force which shapes the way that society and government and institutions develop. So capitalist society is only sort of healthy, if you like, it's only functioning if profit is continually being extracted and reinvested on an expanded scale. And obviously within this process, this is a conflictual process because that in many cases has to be done at the expense of labour. So we have this kind of quite unstable dynamic but nonetheless, which has to go on in a capitalist society, because if you don't have this process of extracting, reinvesting profit, then you have whatever, recession, depression, capitalist societies don't function. So that brings us to kind of the point, the question you're asking, this idea of alien powers and adequate forms. So to put it very simply, the idea of continually having to extract reinvest profit becomes like an alien power you know it becomes like uh for marx and sort of grundrisse and various different points 
this becomes like a force which acts and kind of dominates society. You know, the need to ensure, well, our society is only healthy so long as we can have this sort of continual process of extraction and reinvestment. Um, so that imperative becomes like an alien power over society. And adequate forms is where we look at the sort of institutional and political consequences of that, because from that analysis, we would expect that over time, uh, institutions in our society will tend to evolve and tend to develop in such a way that either they are sort of conducive and beneficial to that sort of continuing dynamic of extracting and reinvesting profit, or at the very least, don't impinge on it too much and don't become an obstacle to it. So um, that is why like, I, I sort of try and argue that, you know, in the empirical world, we can have all of these sorts of things like a sort of, you know, like a kind of class compromise, if you like, often when referring to the sort of post-World War II periods, um, people refer to a sort of class compromise between labour and capital, where you had sort of uh, um, uh, the sort of in installation of kind of collective bargaining systems, development of a sort of welfare state, sort of expanded provision of social services, which kind of enables a sort of tolerable compromise between labour and capital. Um, but the sort of, I think the sort of more kind of radical core of the Marxian argument there is that these things are basically always tending to be living on borrowed time. Because over time, the sort of dynamics, capitalist dynamics, the dynamic of sort of extracting, reinvesting, expanding profit extraction um, tends to undermine those compromises. It can't be contained by them. And when they come into conflict with each other, um, there's going to be one winner, which is capital. Those, 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 those institutions are going to be either eroded or dismantled or, or have their purpose altered so that they become more, more, you know, less of a burden to that process. So that's what I mean by adequate forms, you know, the, the, the institutional forms that, that sort of emerge in our societies over time uh, tend to be those which can coexist with capitalism, you know. It sounds very obvious when you put it that way. But... Well, but a lot of people miss yeah. it, so yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not obvious. Yeah. The, um, well, that actually brings us to, to the next question I was going to ask is, Moving on to the kind of empirical, not that there's a crude divide between the two, but applying some of those ideas, how then do you see class having been reshaped um, and, you know, not necessarily reshaped, but expressed in the move, you know, in the shift from that 1970s industrial compromise between trade unions, states, firms, workers, to kind of today's economy? Um, of you know, I don't know, yeah, whichever way you want to look at it, gig work, financialization, you know, yeah. so-called neoliberalism, etc. What, what, looking at those adequate forms, what explains those bigger shifts? Well, I think um, you know, probably what I'm saying here is is sort of conventional wisdom for a lot of um, you know, sort of Marxist economists and sociologists and so on. But uh, certainly, you know, we we can see that we, we sort of get to a certain point, often sort of 1970s, let's say, where there's sort of a conjuncture of 
you know, global economic crisis on the one hand, compare, you know, sort of set alongside um, various other sort of dysfunctions within British capitalism. But often, like, like what's kind of underpinning a lot of this is, um, you know, what uh, sort of, I suppose Glenn and, Glenn and Sutcliffe, Sutcliffe refer to like the profit squeeze. You know, so you have a sort of period of development and rising wages. Um, you know, the, the perception to some extent justified only to some extent of kind of rising union power, kind of rising working class power, which is basically making it harder for, for capital to, to make profits. And under the kind of rules of a capitalist system, that means that that society is unhealthy. So uh, from then on, yeah, we have, and again, I think what I'm saying here is probably sort of fairly conventional wisdom in kind of you know, Marxist terms, but we have a sort of process of um, sort of class rebalancing, if you like, where, I mean, what, what people refer to as neoliberalism, I think, to me, basically means where you have a, a sort of set of quite pronounced shifts in the direction of policy. You know, so the state starts to think, okay, actually, um, we're not really up for playing this role of a sort of um, mediator within a pluralist system anymore. You know, um, instead, uh, sort of needs must, and what we have, what what we what we start to sort of need to do now is create more space and more opportunity to sort of um, try and kind of resurrect this process of profit extraction and kind of revitalize it. Um, now, at this point, I want to sort of make very clear that I'm not really sort of saying this in a kind of functionalist way. I'm trying to avoid that, so I, I'm not saying, oh, the purpose of the state in capitalist society is to do that. Um, what I'm saying is um, it became obvious that there were problems in British capitalism and uh, you know, states, not just in Britain, but in many other countries, were then persuaded. And if you think sort of within sort of capitalist rule book, probably quite convincingly persuaded that the problem was rigidities, difficulties in extracting and reinvesting profits. And so therefore, what was needed was a more forceful process of kind of not deregulation, but re-regulation. So restrictions on kind of the agency of capital are reduced. Um, restrictions on the sort of growth of capital are reduced through things like kind of privatization, liberalization of markets. But restrictions on the agency of labor are increased through sort of anti-trade union legislation and so on. Uh, dismantling of sort of uh, certain frameworks for labour rights and employment protections. So, so that's that's what's happened, and that that's why we've seen such a shift in in you know our kind of labour markets and our society as a whole. If those state actions are what is adequate for the reproduction of capitalist social relations mm-hmm. or reproduction of of, of, of Productivity and profit, etc., yeah. at a given point in time. Yeah. Where do you see that going next? What is you know, because there are there are changes of afoot in how, say, individual nation states relate to international order. The the return of a, a more interventionist state in some places, whether under a nationalist or populist guise, or a or a more left or reformist kind of guise, like. What what do you see as the kind of the future of those shifting relationships between the state and, and capital and, and workers? Well, I, th- I think we're at 
a very potentially quite traumatic um, turning point, perhaps. But what direction we're going to go in, I'm not. I'm not really sure. So it, it's clear. We, so we do have a tendency, on the one hand, to have, I think, what you know, in your book you would call um, a kind of more personalised uh, kind of government, kind of social settlement, um, which might be sort of uh, you know reflected in people like Donald Trump, let's say, arguably people like Boris Johnson various other people we could name, where there is kind of um, a sort of quite reactionary figurehead who sort of presents themselves as speaking for the, uh, you know, the people who are being sort of quote-unquote left behind by, um, by sort of globalisation. So it's very clear that, that that is a force in global politics at the moment. Um, I don't think that's a particularly positive development. Um, but the question is then is, you know, is there an alternative? And if so, what is the alternative? Well, the alternative is, um, I'm trying to say something other than socialism or barbarism here. Uh, the alternative is a political force which, um, actually has a better, more genuine, more effective way of representing the interests of labor um that is the alternative and to me that means a lot of things in a number of different registers you know so so on the one hand the more kind of uh more sort of immediate obvious goals would be things like um more universalism in uh in, in our sort of welfare state provision um and a kind of attempt to sort of forcibly re-extend the power of, sort of organised labour, improvement in kind of collective bargaining institutions and so on, um, and a kind of rhetorical shift uh, away from a more kind of national populism, which has been sort of dominant even on the left. You know, th- these are all sort of quite modest things that I think, you know, can present a sort of good, viable alternative to those things, potentially in electoral terms. But I think that in many places, the left has been way too shy about doing that. You know, what I'm talking about here is, I think, a fairly sort of modest alternative. But um, for reasons which I discussed before, I think the left in many countries has been too afraid to advance that um, because it's been so kind of agog with the sort of right wing class warrior argument. It's been it's sort of been snookered by that. Um, I think the UK actually over the last couple of years um, has been quite a positive example in many respects because I think it's an example of a sort of left which is less afraid to advance those kinds of agendas. But, okay, so beyond that, um, it's absolutely true. Like I, I've said that institutions in capitalist societies are temporary. You know, they, they tend to evolve in such a way that makes them adequate to... Um, to, to, to sort of the rules of capitalist society. And in my view, uh, in the long term, we have to move beyond those rules. You know, we, we have to um, try and work towards a society where, um, where the sort of destructive kind of alien power of profit extraction, reinvestment, 
is uh, much less of a kind of domineering force over our societies. Um, we have to move to, you know, from I've talked about kind of universalism in a sort of very basic social democratic way, but we need to start thinking about how we can actually move towards the sort of decommodification of large sections of society. Um, so, because, yeah, otherwise there's going to be continually this danger of sort of backsliding into you know, kind of whatever national populist reaction, this kind of thing. Um, so yeah, there's there's kind of maybe two questions, two answers to the question. So so one answer is actually we could have a a a more assertive sort of mainstream left, which is more focused on universalism, more focused on solidarity with migrants, uh, more focused on um, actually building the power of labour as a sort of societal force. And then in the long term, um, we need to actually start thinking seriously about how to how to move beyond the rules of a kind of capitalist system which fundamentally constrain what we can do. In the same way as the New Deal or the Attlee government were adequate forms for the reproduction of capital yeah. at that point, a, a, a similarly reforming government with a Green New Deal, etc., could also be the expression of just what capital needs to prosper right now right healthier workers more productivity you know a stronger compromise to govern all that yeah. but equally in other places what capital might need is a strong man leader maybe also offering some of the same economic stimulus and things like that as a reforming government you know a left government might elsewhere but yeah. but you're talking about the historical horizon being that it'd be possible to that you could you could engage in something like non-reformist reforms or whatever so that you could get to a point where the our institutions could make a break with that reproductive character that they have vis-a-vis yeah. capital social yeah, relations because yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. what's good for labor is also good for yeah can sometimes be good for capital too right i mean roosevelt you know i i think um i am not a big supporter of yeah i i think capitalism is probably bad um, but, well, no, no buts. I think capitalism is probably bad. Uh, in terms of what I want to do about that, um, I am quite sort of heterodox and freewheeling and, um, I don't particularly want to sort of come along and impose like a solution for, for capitalism, you know? Um, I think if there are circumstances where there is, um, a sort of strengthened, sort of genuinely kind of sort of radical social democratic left, which is actually trying to sort of really meaningfully improve things, then, you know, I'm not going to be a twat about it and just say, you know, what a load of shit. Um, I, I'm all for that and I want to do what I can to, to strengthen that. Um, at the same time, I think that it's, you know, capitalism is a system which has ways of working and it's more or less inevitable that those ways of working at various points and in various respects will produce bad outcomes. And it's quite possible, as you said in your in your question, that there might be sort of very kind of nasty governments, nasty policies, which... Um, are implemented and gain consent and sort of continue um, because they sort of appear to fit 
with what is necessary for the the reproduction of capitalism at that time. Um, there's loads of examples of that, and uh, that's one of the reasons I think you know why I, I make that statement. Capitalism, on the whole, is is bad because it, it one of the things it does is present us with with those kind of situations. Um, I don't think I don't think you can I don't think you can get to a position where the um, the sort of reproductive imperatives, the kind of alien powers acting on capitalist societies can be sort of satisfactorily resolved because I think if you satisfactorily resolve them, it wouldn't be capitalism anymore. Um, so I, I just think, yeah, okay, there are also examples where um, labour-friendly reforms like the New Deal, which in many cases improved things for a lot of people, were actually... Yes, also, to some degree, conducive to, to sort of capitalist revitalization. But then two qualifications. One is that there were big limits to what these things achieved. So, you know, if in, in the UK case, the sort of re- ostensibly quite benign class compromise we have after World War II is still based on a lot of, you know, a lot of quite worrying things, sort of racial exclusion, um, sort of colonialism, neo-colonialism. So there's a lot of kind of bad stuff which allows that to be possible. Yeah, of course. So the, so, so the first thing is that even these kind of quite, these apparently benign class compromises, they're often based on bad things as well. Like, the, the, you know, there's other stuff going on which allows them to be possible. Yeah. And secondly... Um, I think that we just have to be aware that they're always going to be temporary and they're kind of there on sufferance. So you can set up a lovely collective bargaining system um, and it's going to last as long as, well, simplifying a little bit, but over time, um, if that starts to come into conflict with sort of imperatives of capitalist production and reproduction, then under capitalist rules, capital will win. So in the very long term, maybe in the medium term, um, we need to try and find a way of sort of circumventing those rules. But I don't know what that is. You know, I'm not, I'm not, um, yeah, I'm I think, not, I think, I'm not going to ask you for uh, Yeah, no, I, I think that, I think that's something which, um, too much talk is about. Yeah, I think I, that's something I would like to see happen, but how it would happen is something that I think has to, evolve organically through ways we can't really predict. So one thing the book does real nicely is connect this wider political economy of capitalism with, you know, a kind of a, a theoretical framework and then also relates that to the state and to the, the political sphere as well. But one other step that it takes is to relate that to what goes on in the workplace and in the work relationship. Yeah. And how these wider tendencies play out there yeah. um, around class, and then also around this, this this understanding of alien powers as well. Could could you talk a little bit about maybe some of these some of these wider historical shifts, maybe, and 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 how some of this understanding of class and classification plays out in those kind of concrete context of the contemporary workplace, the way we experience work, the way work exists is very clearly a product of capitalist social relations. So, um, you know, uh, Alistair Hammonds um, just had this book out. You might know it. Um, it's called uh, 
It's called Ne Travaille Jamais, um, Never Work. And it's like a sort of intellectual history of anti-work discourse in, in French thought. Yeah. Anyway, he has like an introduction where he sort of very neatly, in terms that will not be news to you, but was kind of quite neat for me, the, the sort of concept of work under capitalism. So we sort of, with capitalist social relations, we sort of move from a situation where work is kind of a misfortune, you know, in sort of pre-capitalist societies where it's like, um, shit, we have to get the harvest in, get the peasants to do it, everyone else, like, basically kind of chilling out is what God would do, you know? So having to work is like a misfortune for, for your social inferiors. And even in their case, they're only supposed to do it when it needs to be done. You know, when there's some particular problem or, or, or thing which needs needs to happen. Um, as we kind of move into capitalist society, um, this, this sort of abstract dynamic of profit extraction starts to create an imperative to work, like an, an imperative for constant expanding production and um, where work becomes work, as we understand it today, you know, something you have to do. And, um, you know, otherwise you're basically outside. Um, so, yeah, a huge part of our life is spent at work. It's like, uh, it, for many of us, it's, it's one of the absolute biggest things in our lives. And in the workplace, um, what happens to you, what you have to do, your experience um, is very much conditioned by capitalist imperatives. You know, so it's... The implications of this are just, well, there's so many of them and such big implications that we can't really go into it, but it, it unleashes all of these things, which I think are very, I would say, are quite a big part of people's lives and things people think about a lot and really affect them. So it's like, what happens to people in the workplace? And there's so much you could say here, and it's quite a long chapter in the book where I talk about work, but, you know, things like, there's really evocative stuff that Marx talks about, for instance, like, um, you know, the idea of sort of small thefts of workers' time, things like that. Um, before I went into academia, I worked for like um, like a kind of labour rights organisation where we were sort of conducting investigations into union-busting initiatives, and we found cases in sort of US um, sort of warehouses and so on of people who were being fired for, like, being 30 seconds late back from lunch, you know? Um, which is sort of shocking, but not surprising if you've studied these things, you know, if you look at sort of what goes on, like, you know, sort of Sports Direct or Amazon, you know, I'm sure you find very similar things, or people who've been fired because they sort of, uh, they had to sort of leave to take their, their kids to the emergency room or something, you know? So one thing is the total domination over people's time, like a huge part of their life, uh, becomes sort of is sort of lost to them. One thing is uh, is control, you know. So my kind of academic milieu, kind of background, I guess, is things like labour process theory and all of this stuff, which is very good at sort of qualitative analyses of people within workplaces and look at the sort of constant tensions between, on the one hand, um, their desire to exercise sort of creative initiative, do tasks in a sort of way that is, is sort of pleasing to them, that enables them to flourish as individuals, versus on the other hand, 
the need for capital to basically make, to basically make them do what they need to do within their system. So uh, in the book, I try and give a lot of sort of examples of, of this from, from kind of up and down the labor market. You know, and this is one of the really important points I want to make. If we're talking about sort of control over people in the workplace, on the yes, a lot of the most awful examples in the UK might be something like cases where people have to wear like a, a microchip on the wrist, which is tracking their speed of walking, tracking what they're doing when they get to a shelf, you know, beeping at them if they walk too slowly, this kind of thing, dehumanizing, oppressive. Um, but that is not just the misfortune of people who have to, you know, work in whatever, like the sort of sports direct warehouse being the sort of most notorious example recently. It's not, it's not, it's not just shit, there's some bad jobs and then there's good jobs where you don't have to do that. You know, um, this tension between your initiative as an individual and the system that you have to fit into is, is present in any in any job, so any, anyone who acts as labour, anyone who sort of depends on selling their time and skills in exchange for a wage, and who sort of thereby provides profit for capital, is going to experience these kinds of tensions of sort of control over what and how they do their work. They're going to experience sort of pressure on their time. They're going to they're going to have the experience of having more and more of their time essentially being taken away from them, more and more of their sort of initiative and creative sort of impulses are going to sort of be required to fit into a system designed by someone else for someone else's purposes. Now, again, I don't want to be sort of too catastrophist and say every job is shit, everyone's working life is a sort of endless parade of misery. That's not really what I'm saying. I'm just saying that these tensions are always there in any labour capital relationship. They're just manifested in very different ways. So, you know, it might be that you're a journalist at The Telegraph who I'm sure, you know, if you're a sociopath, you might feel you're able to sort of flourish creatively at the Telegraph. Um, but as we learned recently, you're still going to be watched by a little camera on your computer. I think maybe they got rid of this, but at one point they brought in um, like cameras sort of monitoring when you're at your desk. Yeah, I think that was the Telegraph. Um, there was a news story about some some right wing newspaper sort of introducing sort of cameras at journalist desks, you know. So the really point is the death of a kind of you know bottle Yeah, yeah. Lunch. No, I know exactly. So um, the point the point being not that oh you know if you work at the Telegraph you're you're you know you're, you're sort of in in the same kind of situation as someone. Uh, working in you know, a really sort of incredibly tightly controlled sort of warehouse environment or something like that, but simply to say that in all jobs there is a tension between your sort of creative input as an individual and the system you need to fit into. There's a tension between your time and their time. So these tensions matter for everyone, even if they manifest themselves in very different ways. One of the uh, latter chapters of the book looks at technology, and you know we hear a lot today about the way that technology is going to change the workplace and potentially have a liberating or emancipatory effect. You mentioned some of the kind of more nefarious aspects of that. Thinking about the future of work and 
this this kind of digitalization agenda and some of the political aspirations with which that's imbued. Yeah. I mean, how do, how do you see the relationship between technology and these processes of 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 class and of classification and of exploitation playing out? Is there a way of kind of wiping this stuff? Away, as Adorno put it, as with a sponge, <laughs> in the in the affordances, as they, as yeah. they put it, of, of new technology. Yeah. So, I mean, no, we can't wipe anything away with a sponge. So, um, technology is shaped by and constrained by the, the social relations that form its context. Again, perhaps another sort of very, I guess, kind of elementary. Marxian statement. But what does what does this actually mean in practice? Well, it means that um, any technology which comes in, which which could sort of genuinely hold the prospect of fundamentally sort of uh, changing human existence, we can't take for granted that it will. You know, so um, the direction in which technology develops, the uses to which it is put, are are shaped by forces which are kind of out of our control and which put them to ends to which many of us would not necessarily like. Okay, so um, I don't know what, what's a good example. Uh, something like um, okay, just to take very basic like internet as a means of communication. Um, you know, you you can sort of send communications instantly to someone anywhere else in the world now once we sort of we have this kind of potential to be able to do this what do we do with it do we use it to kind of reduce the amount of work in total that we do as a society so that you know the the labor saved equates into sort of more free time basically or do we use it to make people work when they're on their way to work as well as when they're actually at work? You know, so make them constantly be responding to things on the train or the bus or um, you know, at 2am in the morning. Uh, so well, it's quite a basic example, but it shows us in technology there is often a kind of emancipatory potential there's a lot of examples of technology that you can you can sort of identify and think about where you can say, yeah, I can definitely see how, in principle, this could be used to improve the lot of humanity, you know, give people more free time, um, make them able to sort of do stuff quicker and with less sort of effort on tedious or, or difficult tasks. But... Generally, this is not how it actually works out in practice, and the reason it doesn't work out that way in practice is because the forces, which, because of the forces which shape the use of that technology, which are uh, capitalist forces. So, yeah. So one one thing is um, the fact that the way technology is used is not defined according to the kind of interests of humanity or the public. It's defined according to the profit imperatives of capital. And then you can go further back and say, well, actually, it's not just the way technology is used, but the kinds of technology that's developed and the way it's designed. You know, what are our priorities for innovation? Well, our priorities are, um, you know, if you're a sort of 
So I'm gonna was gonna get into kind of stem type stuff there, which would leave me completely out of my depth. But um, you know, if if you're if you're wanting to do like a research project, if you wanted to do some research and innovation, and you want to attract some funding to uh, to do that, you need to express what you want to do in business friendly terms. You know, you need to explain why your research is going to uh, benefit stakeholders, external stakeholders, and by external stakeholders we mean um, capital. So uh, why do we why do we spend so much time and effort producing incrementally slightly better versions of essentially the same thing? You know, whatever iPhone 10, iPhone 11, iPhone 12, 13, and so on, um, instead of um, alleviating the horrendous conditions faced by garment workers who make the clothes we're all wearing. Mm. You know? Why do we spend so much time and effort directing resources to technology which essentially provides slightly more, slightly gradually better functionality for people who already have very expensive phones, uh, and we spend very little sort of time and effort improving the conditions of people who, you know, whatever, make sort of clothes are wearing. Well, the answer is because it's profitable to do the former and, and not the latter. So, um, yeah, what am I saying? And to, to put it very bluntly, kind of capitalist imperatives sort of screw up technological developments they kind of screw up the ends to which it could be put and they sort of screw up the priorities that 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 inform it, you know, which is not to say that capitalist societies don't produce miraculous technological improvements, but um, simply to say that quite often we find that uh, technology is, is not as use as sort of positively transformative for human beings as it, as it potentially could be. And that's because of the social relations which sort of inform the way it's designed and used. So there's an election on at the moment. Uh, by the time listeners are hearing this, it will probably be done in, well, almost definitely be done and dusted. In fact, definitely be done and dusted unless there's some kind of strange uh, democratic or anti-democratic twist or turn. There might even be another election happening. Maybe yeah. um, In the book, you, you, you come back several times to this, the, the commonality that political actors on different sides of the spectrum uh, have kind of foregrounded this idea of the economy that works for everyone and the yeah. economy as this as this thing in which we all to some extent have an interest um, and the different spins that's put on that sense of economy and that sense of everyone what possibilities do you see in the current kind of electoral uh, debates and and what might come out of that politically for this possibly mythical economy that works for everyone so yeah no so i actually start the book um i think the very first thing more or less is uh, i have a few quotes from different political leaders i think Theresa may and jeremy corbyn and maybe a couple of other people as well where they talk where they use pretty much this phrase the economy that works for everyone um and to me, yeah, this this was kind of a sort of archetypal um, political sort of platitude, I guess, but a sort of empty, sort of empty statement that it's sort of impossible to disagree with. Um, 
without putting yourself in kind of a slightly sort of contentious and controversial position, which is, sort of, I suppose, what I'm actually going to do. Um, so to me, yeah, the reason I sort of started off with this this sort of idea that there's the, there's an economy that works for everyone and um, we can reach it so long as we sort of iron out the wrinkles and the difference, for instance, between um, uh, Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn uh, was how do you sort of define those wrinkles? So for Theresa May, it was uh, defined, I guess, sometimes with ways we've already discussed, you know. Um, and then, of course, for David Cameron before her, um, he talked about wanting an economy that sort of worked for everyone, but but he, again, sort of identified the, the barriers to that as sort of, I guess, kind of welfare recipients, public sector workers. So there's kind of like a shifting process of who do we blame for the fact that our economy evidently doesn't work for everyone. Mm. Now, um, on the left, that was partly where I got into the critique of the sort of 99 and 1% thing, because, um, you know, the sort of 1% was a way of identifying a target for the left, I guess. Now, I don't, I don't say this to sort of stick up for the 1%. Hopefully that will be clear from previous things I've said. Um, but just to say that um, I, don't, I don't think it's an empirically plausible argument that um, if we can just sort of sort out the 1%, then the economy will work for everyone. Um, and this is something that I think both like uh, kind of Ed Miliband and to some extent Corbyn were, were doing, you know, they were sort of defining relatively nebulous targets, which and, and sort of saying that, oh, if we can just sort out this particular sort of bad thing could be like sort of bankers, the 1%, then we can have an economy that works for everyone. So um, I, I, and I sort of have to say in the interests of um, sort of clarity and uh, not being like a sort of centrist dad, um, I'm speaking here as someone who joined the Labour Party in 2015, right? Um, and who never would have considered being in the Labour Party before then. So I'm speaking as like a Corbyn sympathizer. Um, but in the book, I, I sort of, I felt that like the kind of language Corbyn and Corbynites were using, um, this idea of the, uh, the economy that works for everyone, um, despite supporting various elements of the bigger, the bigger shift, that was still a platitude and it was still a platitude I wanted to get beyond, you know? So, so it's the idea that, yeah, the platitude of the economy works for everyone is the idea that we can have a nice functioning capitalist society where everybody is happy so long as we solve X, Y, Z problem. You know, that basic formulation, which to me is wrong because, as I've said previously, um, capitalist societies are unstable and inherently based on exploitation. So actually, you can't have a capitalist society that works for everyone. That, that to me, is an impossibility. 